Lord, we come to you this morning grateful that we can be together on this Ascension Sunday and Mother's Day, and that we know that you speak to us through the power of your word. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would do just that, that this is a well-familiar story to some and to others, maybe not so much. Lord, that you would illumine our hearts, strengthen our wills, and may we serve you well in our day, that you would be glorified in and through us, and Lord, for the edification of all your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so in the spirit of Mother's Day, we're going to look at this wonderful, famous story of Hannah. I encourage you to open up with me in the Word of God to 1 Samuel. Uh, Samuel is really all about David, you know, but it's named after Samuel. And you can't have Samuel without Hannah. And so we're going to look at this and what happens in this passage. And we learn some incredible truths through the three phases of Hannah's life here that we've just heard read by Michelle. We learn, about, we learn from a mom's tears, we learn from a mom's change of direction, and we learn from a mom's song. And then we're going to wrap it up with what do we learn from all that, okay? So a mom's tears, a mom's change of direction, and a mom's song, and then what do we learn from this? All right, first let's look at the mom's tears. If you want to understand the story, you need to understand why Hannah is crying the way she is. Elkanah has two wives. One is Penaniah and the other Hannah. Penaniah is able to bear children. Hannah has not been able to bear children. And so as a result, Penaniah taunts, mocks, jeers Hannah to no end to the point that Hannah is crying all the time and loses her appetite. Can you imagine? We learn two things from these tears. The first thing is, you need to understand, the Bible never, ever, 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 ever talks of polygamy positively. All right? Over and over again, it's especially seen as a disaster for families and especially for women. Therefore, anyone reading the Old Testament and thinking that it supports polygamy simply hasn't learned how to read a text. Right? If you want to see polygamy is a really bad idea, all you really have to do is read the Bible. And you see what a mess that it makes of family and the mess that it makes of women. And yes, of course, there are people who say, well, the Bible promotes it. And you can ask them, well, what are you reading? Because <laughs> it's not there. Second thing we learn is why Hannah is crying. And we have to put it into context. In all ancient societies, ladies and gentlemen, the family, the country, depended on the fertility of women. First of all, the more children a family had, the more prosperity they had. The more children you had, the more bodies you had to work in the shop. The more hands you had out on the farm. Okay? And so the more children you had, the greater the economic prosperity of that family. Secondly, the more children you had, the more likely you were to actually live to old age with a certain amount of comfort. There were no such things as corporate pensions. There was no such things as 401ks. There was no Social Security. 
All right? It's just the way it was. There wasn't any in the early 20th century. You know, my great-grandfather didn't have it. Neither did yours. All right? And so it's a, that's a recent invention in the culture. And so, therefore, the elderly were cared for by, of all things, their children. They didn't get shipped off into a nursing home. All right? And since a lot of children died in infancy, unless you had a whole lot of children, you had no financial security whatsoever. And most of all, actually, unless a country had a lot of children, you didn't have an army. And if you didn't have a good population, and you couldn't promote a standing army, you'd get conquered. That's the end of that story. And so, therefore, everything hung on the fertility of women. Therefore, a pregnant woman in the village was a cultural hero. She was seen as such. And Walter Brueggemann, a famous Hebrew scholar, says oftentimes barren, Hebrew says that barrenness in the Hebrew text is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. It means there's no foreseeable future for you, yourself, your family, or your nation. Without children, there was no power to invent a future for yourself. So Penaniah, therefore, is the voice of the culture to Hannah, saying to Hannah, if you can't bear children, you are a nothing. If you can't bear children, you're hopeless. So you put that into context with the natural desire that 99.9% of women have to, to desire to have children. You can see why Hannah is in a really tough spot. Because, you know, if you really look at the text too, you look at verse 6, and Penaniah, her rival, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. That word irritate can also be translated to roar emotionally inside, uh, to thunder. It's like the sound emotionally of a hurricane within you or a tornado. You ever, anybody ever been through a tornado or a hurricane? It's awful. It's awful. That's exactly what Hannah's going through internally. She was roaring in agony because she wanted children and she couldn't. That's why she's crying. Now, before some of you get up on a high horse and say, well, isn't that just terrible, the way the ancient cultures were? Yeah, ancient cultures did make the family the ultimate thing, but there's cultures today that do that in the East. There is. If the family is the ultimate thing, then women hated themselves unless they were married and pregnant. But we live in an individualistic culture in which individual advancement is the ultimate thing. In our culture, all that matters is your individual achievement, your financial bank account, your looks, your fitness, your beauty, and the next getaway so you can get out of town to Sandals in Jamaica. In our culture, if you don't have those things, you hate yourself. Many people do. Right? There's no such thing as a non-oppressive culture. Every culture speaks into our lives that which isn't true. Every culture comes to you, and there's a penaniah in every culture. And they are the ones who have it all. And they say 
to those who don't, like Hannah, you're worthless. You, you have nothing. But so does our culture do that. And if it wants to suck you into its meaning. So if you do accomplish what the culture says you need to accomplish so that you're saved, then you become like Penaniah, filled with arrogance, taunting, and mocking. And if you fail to live up to those things, and I didn't get to go to Sandals in Jamaica this winter, well, then you're like Hannah, roaring on the inside. That's what cultures will do. And Tim Keller says, you know, all cultures will turn you, if you allow it to, into a taunter or a weeper. So that's the meaning of this mom's tears. Secondly, we notice a change of direction for her. In verse 7, Penaniah is mocking her. And notice in verse 8, Elkanah speaks to her. And he's speaking very tenderly, isn't he? Look at verse 8 with, verse eight with me. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He's saying to her, all right, sweetheart, you don't have children. Build your life around my love. I do love you. Build your life not around what the society says is valuable. Know that I'm valu you're valuable to me. I love you. Now notice in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Why is that an interest? Why is that of any interest to us? The way she responded to Elkanah. Well, the reason is, it's interesting, is in Hebrew, as it says, she rose. Some translations say she stood up. Some others say she arose. Because it's a vernacular expression that means she made up her mind with a decisive action. Whenever you see that throughout the scripture, he or she rose, it doesn't just mean that they stood up. It means more. She, this point forward, is refusing to listen to the culture's voice in Penaniah. And although she loves Elkanah, she's not going to find her identity in Elkanah's love either. So where does she go? She goes to the Lord. She's now determined not to build her life on Elkanah's love, build her life around the Lord. And get your identity from the fact that God loves her. She doesn't want to be enslaved to what society thinks, nor what her husband does. She builds her identity in God. And that's a distinct change in this passage, ladies and gentlemen. She's turning away from them, from the cultural hope and her husband's hope. And she's turning to God. And notice in verse 11, we read, she prays, Oh, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. You read that in plain value, it seems like she's making a deal with God, doesn't it? You know, she's making a bargain. 
You do this for me, I'll do this for you. Just give them to me, I'll do this for you. But that's not what she's doing. First of all, what's the response to her prayer? We didn't read this all down, but if you keep going down to 18 and 19, verse 1, chapter 1 rather, and Hannah said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They ro- rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. That's what, it, that's what Samuel's name means in Hebrew. Isn't that great? I asked for the Lord for this, and he gave it to me. It's wonderful. But this wasn't a bargain. If she had bargained, it would have been prayer, then pregnancy, and then a peace. But when you look back at verse 18, the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. There was peace with whatever God was going to do. She truly had given it to the God. Jesus said, not my will, but yours, O Lord. So, this is not a bargain that we're seeing here. If you really want to look at a bargain, go back to Genesis 29, when Rachel says, Give me a child, O Lord, unless I die. (laughs) That's a bargain. (laughs) That's making a deal. You know? No. What Hannah's doing is getting rid of her absolute need to have children in order to be a person. It's amazing. And she gives him to the Lord by being a Nazarite. Nazarites were simply non-Levites. The Levites were the priestly line. You were born into that family of Levi, and they ministered to the Lord in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But let's say you were a Danite or a Naphtaliite, and you wanted to be a priest. You felt God's call. That was your passion and your love, and you wanted to minister too. You could. By becoming a Nazarite. And you could tell a Nazarite because they never cut their hair. All right? Samson was a Nazarite. And so what she is doing is she is giving away all the social and emotional benefits of having a baby boy. Because she's finding her identity in God. Imagine in her day walking to the market You know, all the women with their children. She, even though she has a son, is giving him back to the Lord. She will be walking through the market by herself. She's giving that up. And plus, this is a boy. You know, all throughout the scriptures, to have a son indicates you can keep the family name, you can keep the family business, you don't have to give it away. And oftentimes throughout the Bible, if a man had a son, he loved his wife. Not fair. It wasn't right, but that's what they did. Guess what? This child, if he's given to the Lord, won't be the heir of Elkanah's business. He goes off to live at the tabernacle because that's what Nazarite children did. 
And so therefore, the benefits of having this child are now lost on her, and she's willing to give even that up to the Lord. She's not holding anything back, in other words. So here's what happens. She makes this offer, and what she is saying is, I'm not resting my heart anymore in what our society says. I'm not resting my heart as much as I love my husband in anything that he says. I'm resting my full trust and heart and identity in you, O Lord. That's a change of heart. That's what she's saying to God. She's saying, oh Lord, up to now I always wanted a child from me. Now I want a child from you. You know, she's thinking, you know, before I would have smothered him. I would have made him a slave even to my emotional relationship with him. Uh, I would have been anxious about him. I would have lived through him. My identity would have been as a mother to him, as so many parents do today. I still want a child, but I don't want this child for my sake. I want this child for yours. Whatever you do now is, I've made that offer is okay with me. And Lord, it's safe to give me a child now. So can I have a child, please? <laughs> and he said, yes. Isn't that wonderful? How did she get the strength to do that? Isn't it, when you think of it, in that category, it's an amazing story. You know, with all the cultural pressure that she has, you know, and I know there's plenty of women who would want her to have a child and they haven't been able to. There's plenty of men and women who wanted to be married and they haven't been. There's plenty of people who have big holes in their lives due to no fault of their own. This is for every single one of us, my friends. Hannah figured out the best way to deal with all the hurts is to give them to God. Finding your identity in God. Well, how did she do that? Well, to look at that, you need to look at her song. Look at chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, through her song, you discern two patterns here that are going on. Looking at verse 4 and 5. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she has many children who is forlorn. You know, you see this pattern that's going on here? What's she talking about? The pattern is God works through weakness not through strength. God works through poverty, not through wealth. A little later, we will see in Isaiah, he mentions Hannah without mentioning her name. He says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Here's the pattern throughout the scriptures. Isaac, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, over and over again, when God's people need a savior, when the community's in trouble, and the people need a leader, who's going to rescue them? They all cry out to God, and what does God choose? A beautiful, successful, 
put all together person who takes an annual vacation to Jamaica? Nope. He never chooses a man. He always chooses a woman who's barren, excluded, and miraculously opens her womb and out comes someone to lead and rescue the people. That's the pattern that Hannah is singing about, that God works through the marginalized. He works with the weak. He works with the excluded, not with the insider, not with the popular. He works with the poor, barren, simple folk like us. But there's also another pattern we see in verse 8. The song also discerns a person. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Going further down in the second half of verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and he will exalt the power of his anointed. You know what anointed means? Messiah. It means the chosen king. The one who's going to deliver. The one who's going to rescue. Because when Hannah is singing this song, there is no king in Israel. She's singing about King David. And King David's greater son. She doesn't even realize it. But she's looking even further down the road. Because centuries later, there was another young girl who was pregnant. She wasn't married yet, and she was an outcast because of their traditional culture. Yet when an angel appeared to her and explained all that God was going to do through her, she burst into a song so famous, it's even more famous than Hannah's, that we called the Magnificat. You remember this one? My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary's son, Jesus, is the climax of the pattern of God's salvation that Hannah knew and that Hannah experienced. Don't forget, Isaac, Samson, Samuel, even John the Baptist were born to barren women by the power of God. But Jesus was born by a virgin woman by the power of God. And more clearly than ever, God is saying, my salvation is by my strength, not yours. You cannot accomplish your salvation. Only I can do that for you. Would you let me? Here's what's even greater about Jesus. Isaac, Samson, and Samuel got up. They took power. They saved their people from social and political oppression. Jesus lost power. Jesus was like Hannah herself and like his mother Mary. Jesus was marginalized. He was excluded. He wasn't beautiful. He was beaten. He was tortured. And he won through losing. He conquered through defeat. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That's the Messiah. The Messiah is like Hannah. Like all the unwanted, infertile, excluded women, Jesus is like them. He's the ultimate example of them. Because this is how God works. <laughs> he works through the marginalized. He works through the marginal. 
He loves them because his salvation is by grace through trusting and trusting in him alone. It's not for people who think they're good people and just putting God at, at an arm's length. It's not for people who think they can live in isolation apart from God's people. It's not for people who have such pride and say, nah, I'm good. Thanks very much. It's for people who know they're not good enough. They know they need God's people, the church, and he knows that they don't have it all together. It's for people that are spiritually bankrupt. They need one another. And the only possible answer is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus does it. And now we know why Hannah was able to do what she did. Because she placed her identity not in her culture, not in her husband, but solely on God. And she connected her work to this good news. She saw the purpose of God in the world and she said, I'm going to build my life on that. I'm going to do everything I do, even have a child for that. And she did. So what do we learn? Well, we learned two great truths for each and every one of us here in 2018 that we can take home. First of all, we learn, you want to be a success? You want a life? You want a career? You want to make money? You can be an engineer, doctor, lawyer, educator. You want to be loved? You want to be attractive? Get six-pack abs? Be the envy of the men? You want to achieve something in a particular field? They're all good things. All of those things I just mentioned are all good things. Not sinful at all. But when those things become the ultimate things and you find your identity is on those things, you know, raising our kids exactly the way the rest of the culture says to raise them and it's outside of this book. The world will suck you into its meaning system and that will be a disaster for you, for your family, and for others along the way. And some of you have been sucked in so bad you haven't even seen it until now. Do you know what Hannah was saying when she said, I don't want to have this child for me, I want to have it for you? When she said that, it was safe then for her to have the child. Now you also need to understand, you have to remember, sometimes Jesus calms the storm by getting rid of it. Sometimes Jesus gives you the faith to walk on the water through the storm as well. Just because you place your whole trust in Jesus doesn't mean storms aren't going to come. But whenever you say, oh Lord, I'm not having the career I want to have, so I give it to you, your honor is enough, your love is enough, that doesn't mean suddenly he's going to give you the career that you want. Because God knows best. But I'll tell you one thing, if you don't do what Hannah did, put your ultimate things, your unborn child on the altar, you're going to make a disaster of your life because your ultimate things won't be the Lord. And the only way you're going to do, be able to do what Hannah did is look at the beauty of Jesus, what Jesus has done on the cross for you. His poverty, his pouring himself out for you, his suffering voluntarily for you. If that's not beautiful enough to you to attract your heart, then your heart is going to be attracted to other things, making good things the ultimate things. You're going to make them your hope, and sooner or later it's going to be a disaster. God is saying, do what Hannah did. Turn your identity over to me, and I'll make you a new creation.
Secondly, we also learn through Hannah's story that any suffering that you're going through, personally, at work, you know, physically, whatever you're going through is never meaningless. You may not figure out in this lifetime why you went through some of those things, but it's never meaningless. Look at Hannah. If she hadn't suffered childlessness and the badgering of Penaniah and the cultural pull of her husband and all the roaring emotionally inside that she was going through, she wouldn't have developed that big heart to give it away. Give him away. She wouldn't have dedicated Samuel to the Lord and his service. And look who Samuel became. Read the rest of the book. I challenge you. It's a great story. Samuel is awesome. He wouldn't have become the leader that Israel needed. He wouldn't have been able to anoint King David as king, and so on, and so on, and so on. Do you think Hannah knew all that at this juncture? Of course not. Do you think Hannah thought to herself, you know, 3,000 years from now, go ahead, Penaniah, talk all you want. 3,000 years from now, they're going to be talking about me, not you. <laughs> no. She had no clue. But it was not meaningless. It's never meaningless what we're suffering, dear friends, ever. Paul put flesh on those bones. In Romans 8, all things work together for the good that love God and are called according to his purpose. You'll never know just what God is doing with your suffering, but your suffering is not meaningless. It's never meaningless. So in closing, my friends, what a mom. We all got wonderful moms, but what a mom. What can we all learn from Hannah? Do we want to be like her? finding our peace, our joy, and our rest in God. You'll never be unless you turn to the one to whom she points to, the one whose ultimate impossible birth, the ultimate son of promise, the ultimate removal of shame, and the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. And God is not saying to you, you just don't want the right things. Come on over to me and I got some other things that you will learn to like and you'll learn to want. That's not what they're saying. Some of you honestly believe that's what Christianity is. It's not. God is offering what your heart desires but perfected. See, this is a Mother's Day that some of you are really at a fork in the road, aren't you? You're really, at this point, like any relationship, you're going to move toward Jesus or you're going to move away from from him. I hope you move toward him. The crucified, risen, and ascended Lord is the total package of everything that you desire for yourself. So if you reject him, you're rejecting yourself. Why would you do that? May I suggest, like Hannah, to take your tears, your hurts, those things that you're finding satisfaction in that really aren't satisfying, throw them on the altar. And turn it all over to God in Jesus Christ. And pray with me. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this day. And we are so grateful for Hannah. You made her with such a big heart through the suffering she went through. And she teaches us, most of all, she shows us 
the anointed one. Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't get up on a horse and pull out a sword and ride to victory, but the one who, like her, was excluded and unloved and all by himself gave himself to you in the dark garden as he said, nevertheless, my will, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. And it's by his cross we are saved. Lord, we take all our ultimate things, which are good, and we put them below the foot of the cross, and we ask for your forgiveness, and we surrender all of our lives to you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we give you our lives to do with as you wish. We believe that. And we ask you, Heavenly Father, to make us like him, make us with big hearts like Hannah. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.